Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Leggi. Peter Lynn is on the road. And today the podcast is being recorded at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Pietermaritzburg, South Africa, where I'm spending 2010 as a Fulbright visiting professor in the Department of Historical Studies. So today is a special day because it's the first podcast that we're doing from Africa. Today is also my great pleasure to welcome historian Jabulani Sitole to the program. Jabulani's research focuses on the 20th century history of South Africa and KwaZulu-Natal. He is the co-editor with John Laband and Ben Carton of Zulu Identities, Being Zulu Past and Present, published in 2008 by the University of KwaZulu-Natal Press. He's also the author of An Epic Tale of Selfless Sacrifices, Cuba's Internationalism in Africa, 1962-1991, published in 2007 by Freedom Park Trust. Jabulani has published numerous journal articles and book chapters, particularly on the ANC underground and on political conflict and violence in the greater Maritzburg and greater Mkambatini area. Giovanni Sitole is the KwaZulu-Natal coordinator of the South African Democracy Education Trust History Project and sits on the SADET, as it is known, National Editorial Board. Hey, welcome, Giovanni. Welcome, Peter. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Very nice to sit in your office here in Peter Maritzburg and have a conversation about why history matters uh, in South Africa and in Africa. And I thought it would be nice if we start off just with you telling us about uh, why and how you became a professional historian. Peter, you'd be surprised that I'm an accidental historian. Uh, I say I'm accidental because the decision to come and be a student at the university in the late 80s was more a, of a political consideration than just conscious decision to come to the university. I had actually come to Peter Maritzburg in 83 as a student. Uh, by 86, 87, I was actually involved in what then was known as the National Union of South African of, of, of National Education Union of South Africa, which was NUSA, and I was a deputy chairperson in the Midlands at the time. And I was getting involved in the UDF structures as well, as, as part of the South African Youth Congress. <laughs> now, by 1987-88, particularly in 88, it was actually becoming tough because many of the youth uh, activists in the area were getting detained. There had been a state of emergency in 86, which fortunately passed me by because I was unknown. And there was another one in, 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 in more soups in 87. And in 88, I think one of the things that we discussed in the group of activists that I was working with was whether the best option was for some of us to leave the country. Because quite a number, I had been involved, I must mention, I had been involved in uh, recruiting people and sending them out of the country as well. I mean, for the ANC as part of the underground at the time. So one of my comrades, Sipo Tabasha, said to me, it doesn't actually make sense. I think this was 88, for me to, to leave the country. His argument being that the struggle required activists more at home than they did outside the country. And uh, uh, something I've never actually cleared with him is, was a very profound statement, if you come to think of it now, 
was that if uh, the government doesn't actually unban us, that is unban the ANC, because we're talking in that capacity as part of the uh, cell, of the ANC cell, was that uh, by March 1990, we would have unbanned ourselves. Now, if you get a colleague who's senior than you in an underground where you take orders and take instructions, it wasn't actually going to be easy for me to say, I insist I want to leave. Mm. And I said to him, then in the light of all this, what do I do? And he said, well, look, let's consider options. One of the options that you become a student, because at the time, I had just quit teaching as a school teacher at a landscape where I was teaching. Uh, a landscape is about 80 kilometers away from here towards the Drakensberg. And I was working for the National Education Crisis Committee, which was actually attending to crises that was facing a number of young people in the context of violence in the area. And I was one of the coordinators in Peter Marisberg, and also simultaneously working as part of the underground. So out of that discussion came a decision that I should really come to university as a student, and uh, more as a hideout, not a serious student, got here in 89, uh, I do remember, if you were to talk to my professors, I was a terrible student during the first year because I was hardly in class. I was running all over. In fact, I've been trying to track down where I was at different times. Um, but I survived. Uh, to a certain extent, I must actually give credit to my high school teacher because surely when you come to university, one of the things you do is to choose subjects. And one of the mm. subjects I chose was history. Primarily because I had a very influential teacher at high school who taught me history in Merenil. And near Pine Town, and she was a nun, very, very influential person in terms of developing interest in history. She was a German nun. And uh, I subsequently got to the teacher's training college, and one of the teaching subjects was history and English. So by the time I came to university, I had this interest of right. knowing more about history. So that's why I'm saying, to a certain extent, there was that interest somewhere, but I was an accidental historian, because then I carried on, majored in history, uh, carried on to do honors uh, in 92, went out to teach and came back uh, and did history master's part-time. So gradually I was becoming a professional historian, a historian and much more serious than this kind of hideout at the university, as was the case when I first came to the university in 1989. And this was a really interesting time, of course, because 1990 to 94, you have the negotiation process well underway and eventually the birth of democracy in South Africa. But it's also a time when history uh, began to enter a period of, of crisis, as, as some people have characterized it. The race-class debate that had been uh, so central to South African history had basically died out uh, by the mid-1990s, right? You had enrollments in university courses that were declining. Uh, the first major national curriculum had really left history out in the cold. And um, even the Minister of Education recognized the problem and he convened that uh, important panel, mm -hmm. I think it was in 2001, to address the uh, situation. And it's also at this time that uh, something new came in in the early 21st century, about a decade ago really. Uh, the South African Democracy Education Trust was created as a presidential project and started to produce a multi-volume history of the liberation struggle under the supervision of Bernard Magubane, uh, who had returned from the United States uh, after his retirement and has really transformed, I think, our understanding of um, the anti-apartheid movements, plural, in and out of, of South Africa. So you've written a lot uh, in the Sadat volumes. We're now at 
I think the fourth volume is coming out uh, this year. It's coming out in the next few months. Yes, mm -hmm. and uh, particularly you were focused on the history of KwaZulu-Natal. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about uh, your work in Sadet and, and perhaps its wider significance. Uh, one of the things that I can actually make, you are absolutely correct, that history reached a crisis point. I think, though, it's not actually something unique for South Africa, because if my memory serves me correct, the United States and parts of Western Europe went through a similar crisis in the 60s, where emphasis, for one reason or another, was on professional sort of subjects where people were saying, you're going to acquire these skills and you're going to be relevant to the economy, and therefore the social sciences and humanities were not important. So we went through a similar process. But I think what was uh, quite important, what drove us to SADET, was uh, the fact that there were a realization, I think two things that were important for the former state president, Mbegi, for instance, was that there were quite a number of aging political activists uh, who had been involved, heavily involved, uh, in the struggle for liberation, uh, both internally, some of them ended up on Robben Island, others were working uh, in exile. But those that were working internally, I must say, most of them were involved in the political underground. And by its very nature, what they were doing was not supposed to be known. And we ran a risk of actually losing the information, because even if you were involved in the ANC structures, our understanding was, you couldn't know anything, everything. And you were not supposed to know everything. In right. the event you were arrested, you were tortured, and you broke down, you could reveal a lot. So what was actually then seen as a very urgent task was then to interview these people. And oral history became extremely important. To complement, amongst other things, the archival material that was already there, you would recall that, uh, and you would know that there are quite a number of uh, court cases. In the Peter Marisburg context, for instance, I've actually gone through the uh, trial records from the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, all the way to the early 90s, particularly because that's the area that I'm interested in, that I'm actually contributing to the started uh, volumes. Yes. Um, and a lot there was actually revealed. And a lot of what went through the courts, in fact, was the truth. But then the, the difficulty is that when people were protecting their own necks, they didn't want to be arrested, to be convicted, and sent to long-term prison, uh, sentences on Robin Island, many people lied in court, because surely for defense purposes you lie of to course. try and save yourself. So we needed to engage with that, to try and untangle what was the truth and why they reported certain things in particular ways. And uh, the entire project for me has been to then to engage with that, to begin to then say, if this is what is known on the surface, what is it that we don't know? And if this is what was seen as the truth uh, during the trial, how far was it a truth, and how far were you guys lying in the process of actually trying to engage with that? So that, that has been an exercise that we have been involved in, which in my view, even in the contributions I've made, is something that I haven't actually probed properly. We, uh, it will still be a long work, I mean, long, long years ahead uh, after the project folds up in the next few years. So we, we, we've been involved in that. And my interest, of course, uh, I think I focus primarily on the ANC underground. I think for two reasons. I think it was convenience. 
convenience in the sense that there were quite a number of these ANC underground operatives in Natal. I think historically ANC was stronger than the PAC in, the, in, in, in Natal. Yes. The PAC never took off. It might have taken off elsewhere, but here it was snuffed out because the ANC and the South African Congress of Trade Unions had a very strong alliance in the 1950s with the Natal Indian Congress, with the Congress of Democrats, which created very little space for the PAC. And again, because the colored communities were very small, very insignificant in this province, even in the Congress Alliance, the Colored People's Congress wasn't strong. So the ANC remained a relatively stronger organization. So that when I started the project, then I was able to go to the veterans. And I think there was a sense of agency. Many of them were passing on. I must actually make a point that when I interviewed a lot of them in the last few years, especially between 2000 and 2005, a lot of these old men would say, and old women would say, has Jablani interviewed you? Especially if somebody was actually sick. And they say yes. And they say, well, then, then you can pass on. <laughs> and unfortunately, I was actually seen as this ambulance person. I interview somebody, somebody passes on, and I right. keep the record. But Which was actually a good thing at one level, but also it gave a sense of discomfort because you knew people were looking at you. We mm. need to tell Jablan the story before we pass on. Mm. But I've actually interviewed, I think I have more than 300 hours of interviews with them. And I'm carrying on with a, a few, but I'm focusing on the younger people. What was actually important, which was significant for me, is that we were able to appreciate how the underground somewhat survived at a very weak level in the 1960s in, in, in Natal, because that's basically what happened. And, uh, and one of the reasons being that um, the area had very significant people like Lutuli, for instance, who only dies in 1967. Uh, and it was therefore uh, an area that had some kind of hope that at some point there would be a revival. But it was very weak to be able to have any sort of uh, organization that could self-sustain itself. So that in the 1970s, a number of attempts were made to revive the underground. But one of the major flaws of those attempts was that uh, the organization became an underground organization, was unable to transform itself into a mass-based organization. I, I think to a certain extent one can even argue that it really even failed to make a very significant presence even within the labor movement. It was quite marginal in how it operated. Because as I say, the very nature of having to work underground requires it to hide a lot of your things. And and even if you to master working through your mass-based organization, it was a big challenge. But nonetheless, there was something that has been subjected to a, a great deal of criticism, the tendency to cheap a lot of people out of the country from this province. Because uh, I'm currently, as we speak, uh, editing a few of these interviews for publication, one of the volumes. Uh, what is becoming very, very clear is that some of the leading figures in the ANC underground between 1972 and 1975 are not apologetic, that in fact they had to identify people and send them outside. The argument being that uh, they needed to politicize people, but also train people and then resend them into the country for them then to be given various tasks, whether they work in the labor movement, whether they work in mass-based organizations, but it was important. It was probably made even more important by the fact that uh, you identify in your work in Sadat on, on Natal that the province also had a, a very high number of turncoats and also a very or a com comparatively high number of Ascaris who ended up uh, uh, 
betraying the movement, uh, uh, and I think that that's that was one of the most fascinating aspects of the of the stories that you were telling in the second volume, um, mm. because it really brought out the pain and the suffering mm. and the complications, mm -hmm. um, and it really deromanticized in a way mm. uh, the struggle in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So why, in your opinion, was was there such a high incidence of uh, 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 betrayal, if you will. Did it have to do with the structures of repression uh, or levels of commitment or, or what was it? I think it's one of the points. I'm, I'm glad you're raising that question. So one of the points that has not been interrogated very carefully. We need to admit the apartheid state intelligence structures were very, very efficient. Um, uh, it's a question that I've actually raised with a lot of informants that I've actually interviewed myself. Why they felt that they were able to crack under the, the security police, for instance, in this province. One of them, who happened to have been a founder member of the ANC intelligence, pointed out that there was a great deal of collaboration between the French intelligence that worked in Algeria and the South African security police in the early 60s to a point where some of the local security police were sent over to France to be trained uh, on how to deal with the issues of, um, of, of, of uprisings and things like that. Now, I think the ANC never actually understood the sophistication of the security police, even in the 60s, because it is my reading of the situation that as early as the early 1960s, when a number of young recruits were sent outside, they were infiltrated. A number of, I mean, let me make a few examples. The names like Carl Kleinboy, I, I, and there were quite a number of other names that, are, that keep coming up. Some of these young people who went outside and started betraying others in the 1970s, uh, Carl Kleinboy is another one, Menye is another chap that they mention all the time, were people in my view, and I'm quite convinced, who left the country under very specific instructions to follow up what was going on. And they were told to lie low outside and come back, and then they would be reactivated by the the security police when it was convenient. Now, as a result of that infiltration, they were able to know who was involved at what level, so that people like Bruno Mtolo, uh, who was one of the commanders of MK, uh, found himself quite compromised. And uh, I can argue, having gone through all the trial records, in fact, I'm actually thinking of having to write a general article on this, that a lot of the evidence that was actually brought to court was evidence that could, uh, could not be disputed. In most cases, because of the kind of training that MK actually received, it was conventional training, and they were supposed to work underground. And there are contradictions when you do that. Because if you have conventional training by standing armies in the Soviet Union, whether you get trained in GDR, whether you get trained by the Cubans, and then you've got to come back to South Africa and work underground, then you're working underground not in an area like Vietnam or Angola where there are bushes. You've got to work and engage in urban warfare. It becomes very difficult. So that in most cases, they made some of the very serious mistakes. Mistakes, for instance, I can mention here, of having to expect these cadres on the ground to ride reports, regular reports, and send them to their commanders. And as soon as the reports get to the commanders, depending on the level at which uh, the commanders, the infiltrators were positioned, those reports got back to Peter Marisberg. I have a case in point of one young man who was recruited in the late 70s, wrote a report uh, when he got to Mozambique, sent it, submitted this, I think, on the 5th of May, 
and uh, by the 14th of June, that report was back in Bidamarisberg. And the DLBs that he had described and the people he had described were, were being rounded up. Right. Uh, instead of rounding them up, the security police decided to lie in wait. So he was sent back into the country. They were monitoring what he was doing. So they were able to nab everybody around him. So a lot of the 10 codes that we have were 10 codes where people who at times were quite helpless. Brulam Tawal, I think, was having a criminal record and a criminal tendency. So that compromised him. Uh, Solomon Banjo became what I would actually call a professional state witness in the 1960s and 70s because these guys were professional state witnesses. They spent their entire life helping the state to convict their former comrades and they needed to live uh, in hiding all the time. I think Mkopozi was another one. There are quite a number of these guys. Again, there is a possible general article there as well. A number of these guys were compromised and they felt they had no option. The option was to save their own skins, otherwise they could have been killed. Because I, I remember again, when you were made a 10 code, you were given an option, you cooperate with us or you disappear. So disappearing meant you die, and they knew that the police was actually capable of killing. So it was, I can attribute that to a great deal of efficiency on the part of your, of your, your state security establishment. I think we're getting a sense of just how treacherous uh, compiling this history is even at present. I mean, these are very serious charges that one could make towards people who are probably still around or might be still around in communities. It's, it, it strikes at the heart of how South Africa has chosen to reconciliate uh, divided people rather than bring them to justice in a Nuremberg mm -hmm. uh, trial mm -hmm. uh, style uh, justice system. Um, but let me go back to another issue you raised before, which mm -hmm. is the relationship between the ANC and the labor unions mm -hmm. in the 1970s, because of course the Durban strikes mm -hmm. of 1973 are often credited as a major, major uh, reinvigoration mm -hmm. of the uh, struggle inside of South Africa, mm -hmm. right? And Martin Legasic recently charged in a journal article that was published in Kronos in November of 2009 uh, that the history of the South African trade union movement in the 1970s was actually misrepresented in uh, uh, the Sadet uh, history and charged specifically the chapter written by you and Sifis Ontlovo on Saktu and also the editing that was done uh, presumably by uh, Magubane and others as amounting to doing what Legasic calls patriotic history the falsification of history for nation-building purposes. I found this quite, quite a serious charge. Uh, how do you respond to Martin Legasic's uh, accusation? I think Martin's uh, um, Legasic's accusation should be put in context. The context that uh, many of the activists in the 1970s who were in academia like himself never actually wanted to openly admit because it could then expose something else about them. In Martin Legasic, let's, let's go to him before we come to this and why he arrives at this. The, the, Martin Legasic leaves the country in the 1960s as uh, a member of the National Union of South African Students. Then he becomes their international representative after going to the University of California, Los Angeles, where he studied with, um, with Bernard Magubane, the very close friends, both of them. He comes back. He goes to Britain, he becomes an activist, and he's part of the ANC as well. However, what he never said, which I've always found quite dishonest on his part, was the fact that he was part of the Trotskyat camp within the ANC. As Trotskyats, their job was to actually ensure 
that they infiltrated the ANC because they had actually accepted that they could not really have a mass-based organization. Uh, they were always a very small nuclear of people who needed to work with established organizations. And in Britain, he works with uh, the militant tendency in the Labour Party. Now, part of their initiative was to ensure that they influence the ANC in a particular direction towards uh, a more Trotskyite line away from the alliance with the Communist Party, which historically was going to be quite problematic given that the ANC had established a lot of connections in uh, exile, uh, especially with the Eastern Bloc countries, primarily because the West actually rejected the ANC. It wasn't the ANC that chose to go to the East. It was, to a large extent, the Western countries in the Cold War context that really, uh, you know, uh, push the ANC away. So it was going to be problematic. Now, within South Africa, whilst this was the line, uh, what tended to happen is that within uh, NUSAS, there was a strife, which we mentioned in our chapter in 1967 at Rhodes University in Grahamstown, yes. where Steve Beagle and others were subjected to what one would actually call a racist decision on the part of the university administration, where they were not allowed as delegates of NUSAS to stay in the same uh, domes or dormitories as other white students. And they contested that quite heavily. I think the statement that Bigo is known for, where he said white students were not part of the solution but were part of the problem, stems out of that kind of confrontation at, con at conference, where the matter was put to a vote and uh, 42 students vis-a-vis uh, -vis seven students, if I'm not mistaken, 42 voted for keeping out the black students in the township. Only seven were saying amongst NUSAS members, no, that is wrong because that's discrimination. Now, after that, the trust within NUSAS, I think because this comes from NUSAS, you need to know who these guys are who are writing in the 1970s. I think it's a big thing that has got to be engaged with quite seriously in our academy as well. In, in the 19, uh, the, a number of these NUSAS people then carry on and become academics. A lot of them are in universities by the 1970s. Because you, when you talk of the National Union of South African Students, you're talking of a tertiary university uh, grouping of students. They then decided, I think, in a conference in 1971, that to ensure that they were not relevant, as Vigo was suggesting in black consciousness, they were going to move into the labor movement. Now, moving into the labor movement does not mean that they were going to initiate the labor struggles, because SACT had been in existence, and SACT was very strong in Natal. I can actually testify after the interviews, I'm much more convinced. It was very strong. Even Lutuli is known to have uttered, uh, issued a statement in 1959 where it said the ANC is the shield, it protects everybody. SACT is a spear to fight for better working conditions for the oppressed and exploited masses of the people of South Africa. Now, for a, a leader who was seen as a nationalist to have been able to say that statement, is indicative of the close working relationship between the national movement and the labor movement, which goes back to the 1950s. Whereas by 1971, these young people, David Hampson is one of them, um, in the case of Natal, and quite a number of them elsewhere in the Transvaal and the Cape, decided that they were going to infiltrate, use what Martin was actually using in the ANC outside, inside the country. So that when people talk about 1973 as spontaneous, I always argue that in 1969, 
there were struggles that were taking place. There were your dock workers sort of strikes in Cape Town and in Durban. And those dock worker strikes were not really uh, an isolated case. There had been similar dock worker strikes in Namibia around the same time in Windhoek. Uh, and the conditions on the ground were so uh, oppressive as well because it should be contextualized. The economic crisis, the economic recession, the oil crisis of 1973 actually, you know, came to a boiling point where this thing actually sparked and was actually openly um, uh, a challenge and exploded. Now, the ANC has never, I think we, we, need to, we need to point this out again and again, a lot of the veterans of SACTU do say they could not operate inside the country because SACTU was actually uh, oppressed and it was actually uh, suffering repression the same way as the ANC was, although SACTU was not outlawed. So they were not having a, a, a direct impact on this. Now, as an underground movement, all that they needed to do, in the same way that these young people wanted to, was to infiltrate and influence those structures. That is how I actually responded to Martin, to say, for a long period, I think from 1973, 69, for instance, let's make that example. In 69, SACTU sees a need to reorganize itself outside the country. In 1973, they had set internal structures of SACTU, SACTU internal structures, uh, committees, uh, as I call them in my own writings. And uh, between 1973 and 1979, they were not having any impact. The initial sort of response they had was to then create what they call front unions. Front unions in South Africa, you South African Allied and Workers Union. They had the General Allied and Workers Union, GAO. They had quite a number of these front unions in various parts of the country. But they were the first as well to recognize that even those front unions are actually problematic because instead of working within the mass-based labor movement, they tend to be working as a parallel sort of uh, process to these. And they are failing to infiltrate and do what SACTO and the ANC wanted done to get back to the masses. Because you should remember, my understanding, the ANC had four pillars. I mean, it's better because initially I did say I was part of that underground. The four pillars of struggle was international isolation, mass struggle, the armed struggle, as well as the underground. Now, the underground that they were at, at a responsibility of ensuring that they can get into the mass-based organizations. So Martin then, what Martin then doesn't tell people is that his frustration is out of their failure to influence this mass-based organization so that it took, a, it eventually took a position that they, that they intended in 1990 or 1994. In their view, there wasn't a need which is what the charge that he makes in Kronos 34. There wasn't a need for a tripartite alliance in 1990. What ought to have happened if they had succeeded was that a, a, the workers' movement should have been organized as an opposition to the ANC and the Communist Party. But on the contrary, because of the work that was done in the 1970s and much more in the 1980s, the labor movement appeared on the side of the ANC and the Communist Party. And I think that is what then he calls the patriotic history. In my view, it can't be patriotic history. It's actually engaging with the processes and how they unfolded. But by the way, that struggle hasn't come to an end. In fact, it's unfolding as we speak. 
because a lot of the noises that you hear from time to time about who does what, what the ANC does, and the fact that there are tensions within the tripartite alliance are indicative of these contestations that are taking place. Because those people were part of Martin's uh, machinery, which was known as the Marxist workers' tendency of the ANC, as occupying very strategic positions in Kosatu as we speak. Petro Craven is one of their operatives in the 1970s. And Petro Craven is a spokesperson for, 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 for Kosatu as we speak. So whenever he speaks, he's not comfortable with the tripartite alliance, but he cannot openly say that because he knows a number of the, the workers who turn against him if we were to say that. So he has got to pretend that he is part of Kosatu, that he loves the tripartite alliance, but it's what the tripartite alliance is doing that is against. So the infiltration goes on. So if you talk of patriotic history, then Martin Legasic is not an objective commentator. He's a heavily engaged activist in the writing of that history. So that there is a particular patriotism that he would prefer as opposed to the other patriotism that doesn't suit his agenda. Maybe we'll have to invite uh, Martin to speak. Maybe we'll have to invite Martin to speak uh, on a later podcast. I think uh, it's an indication of the fact that uh, you know the struggles in history uh, continue, and I think that's a very healthy thing in any uh, in any society. Uh, switching from from labor <clears throat> to the issue of ethnicity, you were a co-editor on the massive project that took several years to complete. Uh, entitled Zulu Identities, Being Zulu, Past and Present. Uh, it seems strange in some ways to have such an important uh, piece of work completed at a time when the ANC uh, has become dominant in KwaZulu-Natal. The Inkata Freedom Party, the Zulu ethnic nationalist movement, uh, uh, seems to have been marginalized or maybe partially absorbed uh, within the, 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 the political structure uh, of uh, uh, KZN in new ways, and um, yet we have this uh, new volume looking at Zulu ethnicity from a variety of, of perspectives. Uh, why was this an important project that was needed at this time? It was extremely important to have a project like this, especially uh, in a democratic South Africa. I would say for two reasons. In the period of the 1950s, through to the mid-1990s. Ethnicity was actually used for political purposes to a point where instead of engaging with ethnicity in a true sense of what the word is, because ethnicity in my view is very fluid, it's not something rigid. It was actually turned into something that was very rigid and a particular viewpoint of what it meant to be Zulu had to fit in uh, very well with what was required by those in power within the Wazulu homeland and those who were collaborating with the, with the apartheid state because remember the homeland system was an extension of the apartheid system so they had a very rigid view of how it needed to unfold. Now for us as scholars we are always uh, quite conscious that people had a different understanding of what it meant to be Zulu. Ben Cartin was very passionate about the subject, myself having grown up in this province I think I spent very little time in almost the 50 years that I've had outside this province. If it's not 36 months, uh, it, it will be quite less than 36 months um, of, of the time I spent away from the province. Now, having grown up here, I'm aware 
that people have different meanings and attach different meanings to what it is to be Zulu. For instance, the, 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 the reason why I was actually excited about this is that whenever people talk of the Sitolis, like my case, people assume that you are Zulus. And I always argue are not. But what would be very strange is that if you were to have another Sitoli tomorrow, the, the other Sitoli would insist that they are Zulus, say something wrong with me. In fact, more recently they were suggesting that I must be Shangan. And I say, no, we're not Shangan. We, we, we are the original Sitolis who lived in the Tandi area at Ilenge. And during Shaga's reign, uh, the chief uh, who was leading the Sitoli people, named by the name of Mbulungen, he was actually moved out and Shaga installed his own puppet in the name of Jobe, to a point where a number of people would think that they are being polite to me and they would call me Jobe, and I would be saying, jeez, please don't say that. Uh, that guy was a sellout. So he installed Jobe. There was a war that was fought. We were driven towards Sunny Pass, uh, next to the border of, of, of Lesotho and Natal, in the, in the, in the Drakensberg, where my, my, my great-grandparents are coming from. So we're driven into that area, and there is history that shows. Now, the question that I was raised uh, um, with my kids, good friends as well, is if we're driven out of our original sort of uh, residential area and the puppet was installed over the chieftainship and some followers left with the chief who eventually died up there, can we then consider ourselves Zulus? Because we're not driven by the colonialists, we're driven out by the Zulus as they were making their own state. So when, as a result, I always say, when it suits me, I become a Zulu. <laughs> because it depends where I am and why I need to be a Zulu. Because it's very fluid, as I say, ethnicities like that. But in my private space, I say, no, I'm not a Zulu. Because historically, of course, I can't be a Zulu. And you can apply the same to quite a number of other groupings within Natal. When you talk to the Shubi people, the Shubi people wage... Uh, decades and decades of struggles in the 1950s when the Bantu authority system was being put in place, resisting this notion that there were Zulus, pointing out that historically they had more links with the Swazis than they did with the Zulu. The same thing would apply to the Ntanguini people, the Laminis. They, historically they show that. So that, I mean, when we put the volume together, our objective was to say, I think we played with quite a number of titles before we ended up with Zulu identities, past and present, being Zulu, whatever. Because initially, we, we were saying, this looks more like Zulu reflections. Each time we're trying to put Zulu together, it you know, explodes in all sorts of directions. And we felt, well, perhaps it can't be correct to call it Zulu reflections. Let's actually say being Zulu and show that, in fact, there are different ways of looking at that. To a point now that I'm quite convinced that having written and having produced that volume with my colleagues, John uh, Laband and Ben Cartin, there might actually be a need to make a follow-up on that. Because I'm getting even more convinced that there are quite a number of areas that were never properly studied, particularly the work that I was pointing out earlier on in our discussion by Noctula Tele of the Maki people down on the south coast. is the same as the kind of consciousness and identities that are shared amongst the Tanguini people, amongst uh, the Dumisa people who happen to be living in the same area as ourselves out at, uh, at Sunny Pass area. The same can be said of the the Hubi people, and if you want to go north towards Mozambique, you can say the same thing about the Tonga people. And there's been work that was written by David Webster amongst other people before he was assassinated in 89, showing that there were different kinds of understandings of what it meant to be Zulu in those areas. So it was in that context to say to ourselves, when we begin to talk about 
the new nation. Because let's face it, in South Africa, as Martin charges, there is this attempt to say we're talking of nation building, we're talking of reconciliation, as part of an admission that this country is known as South Africa, but we never existed as a nation because of the conflicts we had in the past. Now, as we then talk about this nation building, as we talk about this reconciliation, we need to then begin to say, what is it that we reconcile? Reconciliation for me is not merely a question of reconciling the black and the white because of apartheid. We need to go backwards and begin to say, then, do we create space for people to e express their own identities, think about who they are, but do that within the ambit and an understanding they, they belong to South Africa, and that South Africa is actually drawing strength from diversity as opposed to this homogenization and the marginalization of certain voices. And one of the ways in which I see this uh, virtually every day is in the remapping of the streets uh, of uh, KwaZulu-Natal in particular, because that's where uh, I'm staying uh, with my family, and then you are my gracious host here at the University of Jabulani. I see it in Durban when I get confused constantly. People refer me to uh, a Commercial Street, and uh, I find out it has a different name, or Smith Street that doesn't exist anymore, and it, they've been replaced by names I do know well, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kuma Street, mm -hmm. and uh, Gandhi Street, mm -hmm. uh, and Nyembe Street, and so mm -hmm. on, but uh, there's, there, there's, there's a remapping of the landscape that's going on, and um, you're also an engaged historian. You were uh, a main player in the renaming of certain streets in Peter Maritzburg uh, that now have taken uh, uh, the names of uh, activists who fell mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the cause of freedom. Uh, can you tell us just briefly in the few minutes we have left uh, what that experience was like of, of working with the public, with the local administration, and renaming the streets in Peter Maritzburg, and why this is important for belonging and citizenship and identity in the new South Africa? It, for me, it was actually, an, I must say, I was actually honored or even privileged to have been approached by the city council to assist them identifying the names, because it was more like coming up with a blank slate. They never told us which names they wanted. Because these were former political activists with us, they simply said, I think Mayor Zondi simply said to us, look, advise us on what you think would actually be important. And I think the guidelines was we would want to ensure that the landscape reflects the broader sort of public. And as a historian, I worked with Dr. Kesia Lubisi, who is the superintendent or a head of uh, the education department in the KwaZulu-Natal government now. He was still in the School of Education at the time, before he we went over to government. So what we did was then to look at history. Uh, if you notice, if you get into Peter Marisberg from Devon, the road used to be Devon Road, and they would then carry on being commercial, similar to a process in Devon. We decided that the road coming into Peter Marisberg would be better suited as Allen Payton Road. Uh, you know, Payton had written that cry, the beloved country, was known to have been a champion of the marginalized, the poor, and he was looking after, and he was advocating this idea that uh, humanity must actually grow and develop together, yeah, as opposed to what the apartheid state was promoting. Now, instead of having commercial as we get into the city, we looked at the other person who was actually promoting this reconciliation. For us, it was Chief Albert Lutuli. For me, there are two reasons. People were surprised initially. Why do I bring Albert Lutuli here? He was much more known in Devon. He's from Crowdville. But he 
was a national leader, the first uh, Peace Prize laureate. But what was significant is that he had actually studied in Peter Marisberg. So Peter Marisberg at the time was still known to have been a capital of political violence. A lot of violence took place in the 80s. So the question that I was actually raising as a historian is what is it that we offered in the past which was actually different to the image, negative image we had? What we had offered in the past was to train the first Nobel Peace Prize laureate when he came to school at Natal's College in Edinburgh as a youngster uh, before 1914. Uh, after 1914, not to be quite correct, he had been to Otlange to Dube School up until 1914, and he came to Peter Marisberg afterwards. So if then what was then the hub, the main street in the city, could really be given to this person, it was actually saying there is a very positive view uh, that advocates reconciliation and nation building that is associated with a, a legend like Lutuli, and it can be associated with the city. The other very significant one for me was Langalbalele Street. A number of people make a mistake because Langalbalele is the middle name of John Dube, uh, who was the first president of the ANC. And even politicians assume that I was talking of John Dube, when in fact, in my view, it was the chief of the Hlubi people. The reason being, the chief of the Hlubi people was one of the most affluent chiefs in Natal in the 1850s through to the 1870s. He was actually subjected to a lot of harassment by the Natal uh, farming community and the Natal government, who felt that they, he was actually keeping his subjects away from wage labor. And they came up with trumped up charges. They brought him to Bidamarisberg. They put him on trial, which was a very sham trial. They sent him down to St. Helena. Uh, and he was exiled. He was in prison and then exiled and died in 1889. Now, my argument was, if this city had taken the dignity of a well-respected chief from him, and it was done at the top of what used to be Long Market Street, where the court and the magistrate house was, and that street runs all the way, way to the bottom, perhaps as a way of saying we reconcile, we restore the dignity of the Hlubi people. Let us name that street, the Long Market Street, after Langal Balel. So for each of these streets, there was always an explanation. For instance, Chapel Street, uh, we named that after um, uh, Peter Ketchoff. Peter Ketchoff is known to have been a champion of the refugees, of those who were in trouble during the 1980s. He was a head of the Peter Marisberg Agency for Christian Social Awareness. So Chapel Street, we knew the church community was going to make a noise if you took an ordinary ANC activist and brought him there. We then took one of their own and said, well, as much as he was a very conscious, a very serious political activist who was doing that within the church, if we we remove chapel and we put Peter Ketch off, nobody's going to make a noise, and nobody made a noise. That is why I would argue that in Peter Marisberg, the process was approached rather differently because as we, compared to as Durban. compared to Deben, where there is a huge outcry. Here we brought the business people in. We brought various groupings in. We sat down with them. We explained how we're going to actually phase in districts. We decided we're not going to deface some of the history of Peter Marisberg. For instance, Peter Maritz Street still remains Peter Maritz Street. Chess Street remains Chess Street because we felt that people would feel very strong about Chess Street. We may remove Chapel Street, but we needed to keep Chess Street. Peter Maritz, these are the, the four tracker leaders, the first uh, Africaners who came here and established the capital of the colony here. So we needed to respect that as part of that history. Victoria Street, the other side, we knew that there is a British history as part of colonial history, so we retained that. Similarly, Prince Alfred, this side, we retained that. But then we said every other street 
that would then show that the population of Peter Marisberg is balanced, that the history is multi-layered. Every other street that we could change, collectively we needed to change. And it was unanimously accepted, because then we faced in over a long period of time. If you noticed, a number of the streets carried two names for a long time, and they started disappearing slowly as and when people were getting used to these streets. Well, this is, uh, I think, an apt moment to bring our conversation to a close, uh, Jabulani. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge uh, with Africa past and present. And uh, perhaps we'll reconvene sometime soon over some of all of these topics. No, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Peter. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.